Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello and welcome to the latest Word podcast. I'm David Hepworth. I'm joined by Mark Ellen and a special guest come all the way from the South Coast, Jim Irvin. Jim. Hello. hello. Welcome. Jim, oh, also I want to say Jim writes for Word magazine wonderfully and did for various other magazines we were on and also was the singer of the Tremendous Furniture, who we should be referring to later on, who had a, a sensational hit, Brilliant Mind. How many <laughs> years ago, Jim? Six, twenty-one. People need to know that, Jim, if they don't already know it, because you'll be referring back to that. You're, you're you can experience now drink of... in America, that if it's legally uh, obeyed. <laughs> it is, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, that's good. So, y- y- you've, uh, you've come up from Hove, yes. or Hove actually, as they used to call it, didn't mm. and, uh, and it always strikes me nowadays that Hove seems to have taken on some kind of almost stellar street quality in terms of, uh, of, of rock acts yeah. or individuals who've gone to live there. You know, every interview I read is with so-and-so who lives in Hove or Brighton. Is this, is this true? Um, it is pretty star-studded. I think it's just basically because it's, it's cheaper than London and it's by the sea. Right. Um, and why not? You know, so is that why Paul McCartney was drawn there, because it was cheaper? I don't know, no. <laughs> we want we want <laughs> you to paint a picture of going to Tesco's in the morning and yeah. seeing Nick Cave at the fruit and veg store. Um, you know, the kooks, yep. picking up some Weedabix. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much... Uh, I've, well, I've, 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 my local Tesco Express um, off Palmyra Square, I bumped into Julie Birchall there and seen Tim Booth walking by. Tim Booth of, of James? James, yes. yes. And uh, Nick Cave is often spotted at the... Um, in daylight? Uh, well, he, he was. He, yeah. you, know, you spotted things like um, you know school fates and stuff. You know, he's always going oh, out with his kids. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. So it's uh, things like you know nativity plays and something. It's a brilliant idea. So Nick Cave does he do the three? Is he throwing a sponge at headmaster at the stop? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, all that stuff. Nick Cave's yeah. looking as gothic and pallid as ever. He's probably even running a cake stall. I mean, you know, he, he joins in apparently. He's a real kind of. Um, so when he's in the farmers' races, he's still wearing skinny black jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Immaculately bouffant hair. Down with his egg and spoon. With his egg and spoon. That's right. With a cigarette in the other hand. Yeah. That's brilliant. And then we're always uh, we're always treated to this vision by the newspapers. Always treated us to this idea that there's this kind of parade down at the front on, on, at, at Hove with like McCartney or you know Heather 
Heather's place. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and uh, Norman Cook next door. Is that right? Norman and Zoe. Yes. It's just like mini Beverly Hills. I've there. not actually gone and scoped it out or rooted r- r- through the bins, so I couldn't tell you exactly how they, the two houses. Oh right. Together. But there is a, supposedly a sort of a millionaire's row bit. Yeah, along that, along that, the, the, the deep hole. God, dude. Every time I've been there, because one of my sons is at college down there, every time I've been there, there's, uh, there's, I can't remember his name, there's a buffoon who was on a television programme, was a boxer, Chris, um, Chris, Chris Eubanks. 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 He's always driving an almost Jeep about it. It's, it's truck. truck. He's got truck. Front truck. Truck. It's it's front front the front end of a truck. It's just the front end of a truck. The business end, the, the cab of a truck. That's one of the locals. Don't you get a bit fed up with that? Oh, Eubanks, leave it. <laughs> Put your Jeep <laughs> well, Occasionally you see him sort of parked up outside a restaurant or something and you have to kind of walk around it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit odd. <laughs> so anyway, on that, you, you went a bit further down the south coast the other night, Jim, didn't yeah. you? I went to Bournemouth. To, Witten, to, to Bournemouth, mm. which is not normally on the, on the well-trodden map of rock and roll, no, is it? Not at all. Although Mark went to see Bob Dylan there, didn't you? I did. No, yeah, this was the Opera House, though, wasn't it? I think. This was the Opera House. Bournemouth is the place yeah. where they book a gig when they're not quite sure what they're doing, isn't it? You know, they, kind of, well, they sort of do it by mistake, don't they? I have to say, just before Jim tells us the story of, the, of this concert, I had a wonderful letter from a, a word reader called Peter Viner, from Viner this morning, who pointed out to me that apparently Sly had said afterwards, why were the notes Sly Stones who played that? Why were there no black people in the audience? And he said, mate, you're in Bournemouth. <laughs> You've got a choice between playing you know, Electric Avenue in Brixton and Bournemouth. Of course you go for Bournemouth. It's been the hotbed of, uh, of black culture in Britain. So this was Sly and the Family Stone making his first appearance in Britain since when? 27 years. Oh, right. Oh, it's a relatively recent. I thought it was probably longer ago than that. But well, I, think right. it's, I, I don't know if it's his first appearance in Britain. So I... 27 years. It's his first show in 20 years, first tour in 27 years. Right. Have you ever seen him before? No, I've never seen him before. And you are a major supporter, right? Major fan, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, if you think about it, he sort of dropped off the radar in like 1973, really. Completely. No, no, let's get this clear, yeah. Jim. He didn't drop off the radar. He ran to the edge of the radar and he flung <laughs> himself <laughs> off repeatedly. <laughs> let's get this straight. This is the man who's committed professional suicide more publicly. Yeah. Than any other individual. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, there's just a little bit of background here. This is a man who. Let's tell the story before we get the description of the concerts. What, what went wrong? What Remind went wrong? Us. Well, I mean, the, well, it started out with losing the plot completely when he was recording um, There's a Riot Going On, which took two years, which in those days, 1969 to 1971, nobody spent two years between no. albums, did they? You had an album every three months back then. So a two year gap between albums then was, was pretty much career suicide for a star. Then when it came out, he'd overdubbed it so much the tape had fallen to pieces and Look, the right. tape it's fell to pieces yeah. yeah. and you, can't, you can hear it you can hear this, this murky muddy fluffy sound of this record it's because he just worked this tape so well, he wouldn't go through the heads <laughs> he kind of had to widen the tape it, it, it just true. got paper thin apparently you can just hold it up and it looks like someone's cut little men out of it <laughs> <laughs> like a paper doily yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's been voice yeah <laughs> Uh, it, and, and one of the reasons for that apparently is that it, it was it was quite a, a handy way apparently for, for, for getting off with women. He'd invite some lovely back to his Winnebago where he recorded it outside his yeah. mansion, 
and said, uh, do you want to sing on my album? And he'd get her in, she'd do a rubbish vocal, he'd uh, do the business, and he'd wipe it off the next morning, and then uh, and get someone else to oh, no. And uh, That really is, darling, I can put you in the music industry. Yeah, that really yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. in practice. And, you know, and considering that Miles Davis and Bobby Womack and other people didn't make it onto the final album, were also on the tapes, you know. They didn't, didn't have really, to sleep with them, too. They, no, but they didn't oh, stand, the girls in question didn't stand much of a chance. Really. No. <laughs> but, uh, and so he, he was incredibly, um, you know, it, he got completely kind of into a sort of drug well making this thing and there was all kinds of substances flying around, all kinds of weirdos hanging out around these sessions and famously had this uh, psychotic pit bull that roamed the grounds around his mansion called Gun who was trained to uh, attack anyone wearing a hat. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Why? Well, I don't know. But if you if you consider the, the, the <coughs> like some slides, well, exactly. Yeah, you, really you, like. you think of the what his stage garb in the mid sixties. He himself was attacked by his own. He must ball. have been set upon. Everyone's like, oh, <laughs> shit, I'm all right. You know, like, oh, shit, I trained this guy wrong. I've done something stupid. <laughs> and um, uh, it was sort of downhill from there, really, because he he, he was he was taking kind of. Substances like sort of PCP and elephant tranquilizer and, and this is long before it was fashionable yeah, as well, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I think he was a trailblazer. I think there. he was trying it. Elephants stopped taking. But I mean, I've often sort of wondered, just to sort of be serious for a minute. I've often just wondered why he got into this and what it is that makes people go into this kind of nuttiness. You know, losing the plot like this. I mean, obviously, it is weird being famous, and it is sort of. There's a lot of pressure if you're a big star to deliver all the time. But um, he seemed to have this kind of real kind of self-destruct urge. You know, he had this real yeah. kind of thing of, of not turning up to gigs. And the stories of him not showing up for, oh, for, yeah. for, for, for gigs are, 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 are legendary. Um, there's one where apparently he left a bracelet or something at home and he insisted on someone getting a helicopter to take him back home to get this bracelet Return to the stadium to get the game. Well, time the stadium empty. Well, the stadium, yeah. I mean, which was fairly, fairly, yeah, fairly thin on the ground. But he still went on and did the show, you know. And I think these were sort of things to test the promoters and the public and the, and everyone around him that they were still there and they still cared, you know. And his own sanity to test if that was still working as well. I think. Because he climaxed, didn't he, famously by getting married on stage in Madison Square Garden? Yeah, that was the sort of last ditch attempt to to, to get people to kind of pay attention because by that time the career was pretty much downhill he married a 19 year old I think yeah, on stage at Madison Square Garden televised TV, yeah. and do you know what it didn't work out <laughs> I would have thought that we're still together today Dave I, did, I was very you sad you say no basis for a relationship <laughs> I was you know, it, it destroys your faith in human nature doesn't it <laughs> no, you've got a 19 year old attention seeking girl yeah. that wants to marry a rock star on stage at Madison Square Garden and then she's gone and suddenly she's just legged it <laughs> what's happened to but I mean he, he must have basically got to the, play, the point in the States where nobody would, would book him anymore wasn't I he? think there was I can't remember the exact figure but it was something like uh, 50% of his shows at one, one point he was, he was not showing up for so you pretty much you know if you, if you booked him or if you bought a ticket for him you 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 know, it was a lottery. Take, yeah, you were taking a big risk. <laughs> and uh, eventually... It was people, like buying a ticket to the moon, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so people, <laughs> stopped people stopped showing up. People stopped booking him and, and, and the, you know, the career nosedived. But apparently he didn't stop there. He just kept on taking the, uh, the, the, the uh, cocaine, the crack, the, anything that, that, that he could get. And it just got worse and worse. Well, you see, I was amazed to see him kind of reappear about in the last two years. Yeah. Because, was it the Grammy Awards where they gave him some lifetime achievement thing, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. This is like last year, 
And it was a disaster. Yeah. He turned up and he made like 10 seconds on stage, played a bit of a chord, went off. Yeah. And what I think it indicates is there's sort of serious problem here. They're running out of legends, aren't they? Yeah, because you wouldn't... They've done all so the big a liability. It's so legendarily a liability, actually, that you would have avoided it if you possibly could. Yeah. Sly Stone must have been so far down the list that had kind of Chuck Berry at the top. Yeah, you know what I mean? exactly. The, the desperate, unreliable, way down the bottom. And then actually got to that point. Yeah. And then I was amazed when I was on the Tube the other week and I saw this huge, great poster across the track, down on the Tube, for this big festival called Love Box, which took place in East London a couple of weeks ago. And there was his name, Sly on the Family Stone. I thought, I cannot believe somebody's booked this guy. Because I suppose his legend's just grown again, hasn't it? And apparently what he did to that one was he turned up to, for the show, um, his luggage hadn't arrived, so he demanded that he had a shopping spree at Selfridges for him and his family to replace all the luggage that had gone. Who did he pay for that? Uh, the promoter. The promoter. Right? Usually the promoter at See, that can point. I, can, I, can I, before you... Yes, Matt, excuse me. Go on, it's Matt. Yeah. Is Matt our producer? Not only did he have a shopping spree at Selfridges, but he actually made them open the store, because the store I heard the store was closed, mm. for him and his family, and then he lost one of his children inside Selfridges. So They have to make a, a message, send him to the information counter. There's nobody else. Nobody else there. Can't to get straight, Sly Stone's children must be 45. Well, what actually happened with this 19-year-old girl. Oh, right, but that's, that's, a, that's a long old time ago. Girl. But look, Jim, before you tell us the, the, the story of this concert, this, uh, our reader, uh, Peter Viney, who sent me this email this morning, I'm going to just read a couple of quotes. It's a long email. old email. This guy, I tell you what, he's, he's furious. <laughs> he wanted the best. He's upset because <laughs> he's paid a lot of money to go and see... Uh, to go and see Sly Stone. Not as much money, actually, as a guy who... Um, uh, our writer, Steve Yates, who got a brief interview with him, which we're about to publish, actually, mm. which will be fantastic, I have to say, said he met a Scottish guy who travelled 700 miles to see Sly Stone. He was so furious about how bad it was and made so much noise expressing yeah. this fury uh, that I he was ejected it. from the venue. Oh, was he? Then he was let back in 10 minutes later when the bouncers thought he was absolutely right. <laughs> I'm sorry for him. So you but saw this guy? I saw that guy. Oh, I, I, heard, guy. I heard this Scottish guy sitting on the seat. He was like holding court. That's the guy. Saying... I've, I've never seen anyone piss away their legacy so convincing. That's the guy. <laughs> he, he was just... But the apparently said he wanted to go back to the bus. said, fair enough, we've been in the sea after this concert. It's absolutely diabolical. Get back in, mate. Not only that, I, I sat next to two guys in this terrible pizza restaurant, which I should just advertise the worst restaurant I've ever been in. <laughs> <laughs> what was uh, the name of it? Just up, it's called La Pamero. It's just up the road. Never eat La Pamero, listeners, <laughs> in Bournemouth. And uh, the... Uh, <laughs> There was a... Postcode anybody? There, yeah. <laughs> there were two guys from... Pay to get in. Pray to get in. There were two guys from Norway. <coughs> they come from Norway they to see Sly Stone. They from Norway to see Sly Stone. So they were. And how were they feeling? Was this I didn't the see them afterwards. That was beforehand. They were quite optimistic beforehand. But oh, I'm only going to read out the nice things that uh, Peter says. He says, <laughs> there was fairly concerted booing. I love that expression. Fairly concerted booing uh, from the audience. And then Sly's daughter came on and did 30 seconds of rap. This actually is 35-year-old daughter, yes. who was present when um, Steve Yates interviewed Sly, and her contribution was to pepper him with grapes, pelt him with grapes throughout the interview from the other side of the room. Anyway, she comes <laughs> on, does 30 seconds of rap. The band kept playing higher and higher, perhaps in a vain attempt to get vaguely near the contraction 90 minutes. Sly ambled back on, but thought it was thank you for letting me be myself again. Uh, they switched between that and higher and higher. He wandered off. The family stone kept playing bits of higher and higher. People started to drift off, uh, and we joined them. Uh, and so at one point, he lurched along the front, jumped off the stage, or possibly fell off, 
and wandered about in the audience before he managed to get back up, lifted by three bouncers, and wandered into the wings again. Yes. And that was only in a brief or five-minute period when he was actually on the stage. Is he, this true? Yeah, These yeah. allegations. He came on three times. He, 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 first of all, the sequence of events was the band came on, they sort of plugged into their gear and sort of fiddled about for a bit, sort of doing like a line check on stage. This was their entrance, you know. I said, oh, this is impressive, you know. And then they launched finally into Dance the Music, and it sounded pretty good. And then they did Everyday People and... Um, Just hot, the band. Hot Fun in the Summertime, yeah, this, the, the family stone, you know. Right. And I suppose that that was at the point at which they kind of go, let's jump, here he is, this is lifestyle. And what does he look like? Describe him. Well, no, before they got to that, the guy that was sort of the MD, I think, the the guitar player sat at Sly's keyboard and tested the mic went one two one two and obviously didn't hear anything we could hear him but he couldn't hear himself so he sat there for ten minutes going one two one two one two until somebody fixed it and then he started to sort of turn it into a kind of an audience participation thing he said Sly's not going to come on until his mic's fixed so Fix Sly's mic. Fix Sly's mic. Oh, oh that's no. a boy. It's not Woodstock. It was just no rain, rain, rain. And of course, whenever the, the audience started a slow hand clap, the drummer stood up and sort of joined in oh. as if he was instigating it. You know, their stagecraft was just appalling, the oh. whole thing. And you just felt they hadn't been kind of gigged in at all, you know, and the, no. the whole thing with it. Gigged was, in? I've never heard that like expression that. before. It was what just that gigged <laughs> in. Yeah. It was just toe curling. I mean, every sort of decision what you know to get over what was happening on stage was just awful. To the point where, as they were kind of coming out of this 10 minute um, lull where the, the things haven't worked, they were sort of trying to play a bit to sort of see what the, the, the sound was like. By this time, the PA guy turned the PA off so they could tell whether the monitors come on. So then, you all you could hear was them coming out of the monitors while they played uh, Don't Call Me Nigger Whitey. Which seemed like a sort of an inappropriate kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Bournemouth. In Bournemouth. <laughs> it works. Um, oh Lord! Uh, there was a sort of a sort of everyone looked at each other. They're not singing now, are they? You know. <laughs> you know. I mean, obviously we were fans. We, we sound checking mid 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 So the sound checked this this song, and then it sort of picked up a bit, and then finally, sort of Sly came on, and and. Well, it was indescribable, really. I mean, he looked like the Grim Reaper at a Harry Potter convention. <laughs> it, it was sort of, he was sort of hunched over with this sort of glittery cape on and, and, and kind of dice all over it. And he, I think it was hiding a neck brace. Because, you know, he fell off a cliff recently. <laughs> hiding a neck brace. Yeah. It doesn't auger well, does it? <laughs> really? and, uh, and he sort of slouches on and he came and sat down. He started to play it, you know. And he sang, If You Want Me To Stay, which is my favourite Sly Stone moment. I love yeah. that song. And it sounded great, but we couldn't actually hear him. Because you could tell he was singing, but we weren't hearing it come... come was that his fault? Was that well, this was after this 15-minute fix of the yeah. mics. So let's the say mics weren't fault, yeah. working. I don't know. I mean, so, so, I mean, this is the thing. You know, thinking, well, you know, he's not played for 30 years. But you think the crew might have done a gig in the meantime. Yeah, 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 it was just awful. And... and, and uh, uh, it, it just went on from there, it got worse and worse. He did about two songs. He did that and sing a simple song. And then he said, Back in a minute, y'all just gotta take a piss. And he and she said, Take a piss. Take a piss. Oh. And he walked off. And then, Do you think he wasn't taking a piss, Jim? I don't know. Apparently, on one of the shows. He was taking a powder. Yeah. <laughs> Powdering his nose. One of the shows on the tour, he said that and then never came back again. Small mercy, sounds like. <laughs> that would be enormously relieved. And, uh, but, no, but no, 
Well, actually, when he came back on the second time and did I Want to Take You Higher and a couple of other things, it sounded great. It was actually all right. And that's when he was obviously thinking, oh, this is pretty good. And he jumped off into the... Um, you don't, I don't think he jumped into the crowd. I think he just jumped into the um, orchestra pit and sort of... Well, for, a, for, for a man apparently wearing a neck brace, pretty, <laughs> pretty <laughs> courageous <laughs> jumping anywhere. I know. And then he sort of... You could, you could just sort of follow him by the hands of, you know, holding up their, their mobile phones, taking pictures on the yeah. cameras. And you sort of saw them move along the front of the stage. And, and then he kind of reappeared in his, in his black and white lame. And oh, this is... It's absolutely appalling. Uh, and then, they, when it finished, after about 45 minutes, um, there'd been a couple of other kind of stops and starts along the way. Um, and then uh, they were roundly booed. And then took this as the, um, the cue to come back on for an encore. And that's when they gave us a bit of rap and a cover of James Brown's Sex Machine and all kinds of things. Oh, just we, what you wanted. We didn't want to hear, you know, and the bass player did a solo. Oh, and, oh joy! And, yeah, this um, is shocking. And, and not only that, thumb-whacking solo yeah, as well, yeah. you know. This is interesting. On his six-string bass, which is always a bad sign. When someone gets one of those. <laughs> Jim, you're in a bit on the spot fine for that. <laughs> Jim, you're in, a, you're in a better position than most to comment on this. This is really interesting. Interesting because it's almost been my belief that alone amongst entertainers, rock and roll musicians can be staggeringly insensitive to how badly they're going down. Mm, mm. Can re- genuinely not notice and dig themselves in further yeah. in a way that kind of comics or actors wouldn't, wouldn't do. Yeah. Why is that? I was actually having this conversation on, on the way home and I was trying to work it out myself because it, it, you thought, how can. Is it, is it just a sort of a triumph of, of, of you know, willing it to be all right, or that you've worked out this set and you're going to carry on regardless, and, you know, and it's the last night of the tour, so they were probably hoping it was going to be a, a big thing and they got a little bit planned, you know. For yeah, yeah. And they, they wanted to do it. I don't know. I'm sure there was an element of that. But I think it's also that you... That, part, it's partly to do with the fact that your, your thing's coming out through monitors. You're hearing one version of the show, the crowd's hearing another version. Yeah, yeah. See, that's really, I agree with that. Really if you're on stage, to, uh, you must be able to read the audience's reaction. It's a physical thing. Yeah. You can see whether people are moving their bodies in a manner suggestive of enjoyment and happiness. Yes, you can. And yeah. if they're standing there with their arms crossed, uh, shouting in broad Scottish accents, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I shall give my voice. <laughs> 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 I mean, the thing this was the, the, the thing about this show is it was really odd that the crowd's mood was like kind of, you know, South Coast weather. It changed within seconds. They were all kind of hands in the air doing, I want to take you higher, and they were willing it to be amazing. And, you know, they paid 40 quid, we're going to yeah. squeeze every last drop of yeah. pleasure from this thing. And so they're, they're, they're flinging their arms around, having a great time. Uh, and then the next minute, they're, they're booing, you know. And when the guy's doing fix slides, Mike, fix slides, Mike, the girl standing next to me said, Sly can fuck off for a start. <laughs> and this was his biggest fan. Yeah, and this is before he'd come on. Yeah. You know, and it, it was bizarre. It was that weird, the weirdest atmosphere I've ever experienced at, at a gig. So even the crowd couldn't tell what they were thinking. It's like, like that line in with doors, get out of here and fuck off while you're about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, Jim, that sounds like a collector's item. Mate. That's incredible. Absolute collector's it, item. But maybe I should rejig this piece into being, is this the worst concert you know, in, in, in recorded history? <laughs> well, it's unforgettable. Let's Did you that. pay, by the way? I didn't pay, no. Yeah, but you still have to are you reviewing? But I mean, yeah. even if you hadn't paid, you know, you're still a bit of greedy, aren't you? Well, I mean, it was a major. It's it's a, it's a two-hour drive down to, to Bournemouth. The, the show. I mean, he didn't come on for an hour and a half, by the way. I mean, he was due on at ten. He didn't come on till half eleven. Oh no! Yes. Yeah. Oh, 
Oh, God, well, I'm in bed. That was lucky. No, I'm in bed. You lynched. So I'm yeah. in Bournemouth. I roll in at half past two in the morning. with welks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I roll in how, how was it? Terrible. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, that's Just get frosty looks in the, at the breakfast table in the morning, you know, at six o'clock in the morning when you have to get up again because you don't feel too good and, uh, you know, you got home a bit late and, uh, and uh, yeah, it was just... What have you got to show for it? Yeah, exactly. what have you got to show for it? Well, you, you have been to the most extraordinary show. I mean, I was glad I went because I wanted to say... Well, I'm glad you went because I really enjoyed this. I wanted to pay homage. Well, I've enjoyed the fact I wasn't there. <laughs> I always like to talk to people who've been to notably terrible gigs. You know, they're far more interesting than notably good ones. Because yeah, everybody right. always raves about the good ones in exactly the same it's way. the same thing, exactly. It's, it's amazing, the crowd were really good. Because they're, 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 they're terrible. They're unique to the crowd. But if it's a bad experience, everyone has an individual yeah. bad experience. Yeah. yeah. It's a very personal thing. I was there with someone who, who, was, who, who said, you can't. You can't slag me. He was even saying, this is great. I'm waiting an hour and a half for Sly to come on. This is just like the 60s. Yeah, that's you know, the, yeah. If you come on the other, I would have been disappointed. You know, this is the experience I paid to have, you know, to yeah. be kept waiting by the great man, you know. And, and he was great. He, he, thought, he, he thought he'd had a lovely time, you know, because it was, it was rubbish and he sort of appreciated even it. Even at the end, was he booing this guy? No, no, no. But, but, but the, the, the Scotsman was just, uh, you know, absolutely appalled. <laughs> and he was sitting in the worst, sort of sonically, the worst part of the house. Well, he didn't bother to go into the bit where you could actually hear what was going on, you know, which wasn't that bad. But to when be thrown out, out. sorry, I have to repeat this, to be, to be thrown out for bad behaviour, for being a public nuisance, mm. and then being allowed back in again by the bouncers, because clearly that was the only entertaining thing in the room. <laughs> it's pretty sensational. <laughs> That's it? very the queue for returns, you know, for people wanting their money back, was pretty substantial. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. I've never seen that ever. Yeah. Can you do that? You know, I didn't know I you know, could no, do I, that. Can you I just I, feel I money didn't. back at the club? It's interesting, they ought to introduce a new thing. You know, like, God, you know, like in restaurants, when you order food, and you start eating, and they always come round to your table and say, "Is everything fine?" Yeah. That's largely so that you can't complain later on that I got the wrong thing or it was this yeah, was yeah. off. Absolutely, right? yeah. ought to do the same thing. They should come round and fly after two numbers. Yeah. Somebody ought to come round and go, "How's it going?" Yeah. What do you think? Double, double, so double, 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 roughly what you were expecting. Everything was fine because slides do. don't yeah, come on stage. Are you feeling all right? Oh, is that what it is? That's the official. Earlier on, you said you're. I quote, "I'm feeling all right." Don't come crying to me now. Listen, we must. We no, must. I ordered Bob Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sing the bloody tunes. Martin Kershaw once shouted out to Bob Dylan behind me. Mark's getting some banners made, aren't you, at the moment? Saying, "What is it? Play some old. Play some old. Oh, do some old. Do yeah, some that's, old." That's an expression that uh, apparently American audiences now use if, if, if they're paid to go and see the Eagles or something. They don't want something old. They don't want a new record. Old oh, new album. Something. They just they just they shout out, "Do some old." I think it's a good thing for a teacher. So brutal, do some old. Do some old. That's the basic. That's so, what we're and we're going to talk about this now, Jim, because uh, well, doing I, some old, doing some old. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you hadn't seen furniture for twenty nine years. <laughs> we have them behind this curtain, and they're going to come on if I make one. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. I've been watching with interest this campaign uh, conducted by the British music industry to try and get the copyright for recordings mm. extended beyond fifty years, and they've lobbied the government, and, and they, keep, they keep getting turned down. They've been turned down again recently. Yeah. And you may have noticed it you know, in the paper and on the news or whatever that Cliff Richard or, I think, uh, Roger Daltrey coming out saying, well, this is a terrible shame because, you know, if things fall out of copyright after 50 years, musicians will no longer have this income stream, mm-hmm. presumably from sales of recording. 
And I thought on the basis of your experience with furniture and your hit, which, as you say, keeps turning up on compilations, you'd be in a position to tell us how much truth there is in this. Well, personally, with one small hit in one territory, it doesn't really amount to a pension. But I'd imagine that if you're Roger Daltrey, you probably would be a bit more fed up about it than Pete Townsend is, for example, because Townsend's going to be looking at publishing. Which, which lasts longer. Which lasts longer. <laughs> right. Like Daz. It's something like 75 years plus death of the, the author yeah, yeah, yeah. and the composer. Yeah. Um, so that lasts a, last, uh, a lot longer. But for, for, for a musician's performance, it's only 50 years. So somebody like Daltrey is probably staring down the end of his uh, payout, you know, for certain things. Someone obviously goes in chronological order, so his payout on, um, you know, pictures of Lily is a lot sooner than his, his uh, expiry date for Relay or Who Are You, you know. Right. But, um, but what percentage-wise would be the amount that he get for performing on Pictures of Lily? Uh, compared to the amount that Pete Townsend gave for writing it. You didn't write any of this. No, now, to be honest, I've I've never quite got to the bottom of this because it's one of those mystery things where the money appears in your account and you're not too sure who filled in the form to to get this to you in the the first place. But there's a a thing called PPL, which is uh, Phonograph Performance Limited, and they're a collection agency, and they've recently amalgamated several other... Co- uh, collection agencies like um, UK Performer and Pamra, who all took, who all concentrated on different aspects of of, of musicians' yeah. performances on things like film soundtracks and and and, and uh, live performances. So yeah. there, was a, there was another agency at one point that just collected for gigs and, and live performances, TV and film. They've all amalgamated under this one banner, PPL, and someone somewhere fills in a form to say who the musicians were on a track and they'll get a kind of pro rata chunk of that track every time it's, uh, it's, it's performed. Uh, that, it has to be not that song, but that performance, that actual recording yeah. played or, yeah. or, or used in something, and you get a little bit of that. Um, and that's what, and I presume Roger gets 25% of a, who, uh, of a Who recording, something like that. So that's what he'd be looking at. And obviously there's, there's dozens and dozens of Who recordings, and they'll be making a very nice, you know, but there turnover. Are, and there can't be much, there can't be much pop music that's still selling in significant quantities 50 years on. after, yeah. after it originally came out, surely. I'd love to know what uh, Cliff and the Shads are looking at, actually, for, 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 for their stuff. I mean... Is that stuff still standing there? Well, the day I met Marie? I mean, well, the day I met Marie, not so bad. I mean, they're talking the ones that are going out of copyright are the likes of the Living Doll, hmm. very early things. Now, as my, my understanding is, it goes out of copyright, which probably means that if I wanted to start a record label and put it out, if I knew how to market a Cliff Richard record, I could, if I felt there was a market for it. But it also strikes me that if Cliff Richard wants to put it out himself, he could also do that. Yeah. You know, it just means you don't have the exclusive copyright to do it. It and means other people have it as well. The Elvis Presley, early The Sun stuff's fallen out of copyright in theory, so there have been several attempts to, to, to put that out under, on other labels. But I think they have you now under this other thing where people copyright the, ver- the, 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 the actual recorded, the mastered version of it. Oh, really? Yes, so people copyright a mastering of a particular thing. So when you get these remastered stuff, and you, or you get someone that cleans up old 78s, you know, like Robert Palm, uh, Parker used to do Right, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, his version, the Robert Parker versions of, of those recordings are in copyright. 
Oh, really? <laughs> Which is a bit rich, really, when so you think you about it. You couldn't buy a Robert Parker CD. I, I, I think... I take, the work, I take the work of a, lo- a load of long dead, immensely talented men, you know, rub, rub the fairy liquid <laughs> over it Jake, a bit, and Jake suddenly it's mine. Yeah, yeah. Get a load of cash out of There's it. all kinds of things going on here. Well, because as we frequently remark, I think Disney have been successful in extending the copyright of such recent commodities as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You know, these stories that go back into you know, Grimm's fairy tales and beyond. That's right. They've managed to extend the life of those things. Yeah. It's like, happy birthday is still in copyright. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. You know, they, they managed to do that. So, Jim, what's the. I don't know if you can answer this. What's the most you've ever made in a year from your hit since it was from, a hit? From Brilliant Mind, the most I've ever made in a year. This is one hit in one territory. Uh, we're trying to estimate how much it'd be possible to make per day if you were stinking. <laughs> every breath you take. I mean, I think, well, obviously, you, the. the it's different because the life of a, of a hit song is it's going to be much more intensive. How much money, Jim? <laughs> Jim. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, we just, 21 years ago this was, when it was a hit, it's all sort of 18 the years money, ago. Jim. It was something like seven or £8,000. In a year? What, seven, 21 years ago? Yeah. yeah. That's very reasonable, isn't it? That was quite good 20, 20 years good. ago, wasn't it? But you you're, you're, not, you're not retiring on that. Not retiring right? on that now. Not now, no. But, and that was just the PRS. I mean, obviously, that was just... But it's possible to, to estimate that, that every budget must, must, must earn thousands of pounds it must every day more in all territories. I can't actually remember the, what the big yeah. year on that tune was. But now I'm, I'm, I'm only on 40% of the song. So if you're on 100% of the song, then... Um, right, exactly. You know, so back to Sting. Sting is probably, right now, actually, of course, at six in the evening, still prettily a slumber on a waterbed somewhere, isn't it, Dave? In a big pile, probably, probably scattered with uh, rose petals. Well, if you think... Well, it seems strange that Woolwich is working about it. Tell you what, mate. But you see, that's possibly not true. You know, the right. economics of the music business are stranger and more difficult to fathom. If that were true, Sting is not doing that. Sting's out on the bloody road. He's out on the road. With two members of the probably doesn't get on terribly well with, trying to make more money to pay for his huge family and whatever his next investment is. That's the thing. It's serious. It's a serious point. These guys are, they're like contemporary equivalents of ancient aristocrats. They have many, many mouths. That's why you two can't split up, isn't it? Because half of Ireland would be unemployed if you used it up. I think there's probably a lot. But it's that, well, I think there's a psychology involved in this. And the Stones are the best example thing. That I think Mick Jagger has five houses. And I think uh, Keith Richards has six, actually. And if you imagine that your accountant says to you at the end of the tax year, look, you're going to have to sell one of your houses, then the sheer psychological horror of realising that the concept of Keith Richards has had to downsize to diminish, to get smaller, to be no longer as grand as it once was, is is so great, I should imagine, that you're motivated to try and tour to maintain that six house, mm. so that you're still See, they never entirely re- buoyant. They never reach. You the can point go on buying houses, but it's very hard to sell them. Mm. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. But do you think it's like I any other? Mid year, bought a huge, great pile of bricks in Chiswick, where I live in, in West London, on the river. He wouldn't get much for it now, actually. <laughs> the basement's a bit down. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> hurry, 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 <laughs> hurry. Now's the time to go. And he was there for about a year before, um, you know, before yeah. whatever amount of money he thought he'd made. He couldn't quite sustain. And uh, that must be hard. Chris Salovich once told me, as a writer for The Enemy, that he'd, he'd interviewed Greg Lake of Emerson Lake and Palmer. Now, Greg Lake had lived on this huge great estate in Devon, you know, with quad bikes and motorbike and old vintage cars and a barn full of recording equipment and a lake full of carp. The next time we interviewed him was a semi-detached in Twickenham. 
with, with just one little suit of armour. You had to, to squeeze past in the hall. That was the only relic of the glory days of Emerson Lake and Palmer. Because the tax man come knocking at his capacious castle. Probably had to climb across a moat to get yeah. to the door, actually, <laughs> and avoid a lot of boiling oil being thrown by road managers. Yeah. And uh, presented with a tax bill. There went the castle. There went yeah. the carp lake. There goes the neighbourhood. There goes the neighbourhood, I know. Yeah. Also, they generally get divorced twice, don't they? Absolutely. They have the kind of height of their, of their earning. I went to John Entwistle's mansion. Oh, go on. Down in the Cotswolds. Oh, yeah. which is legendary. Oh, this is an interesting one. This go is on. a fantastic place. This is a sort of, it, it's so designed. It's, on, this, it's on, the, on the edge of a town, a town. I can't remember what the town is. But the town is sort of... Star on the wall. Yeah, yeah star on the, the town is there, sort of right next to it. But it's so designed that when you look out of the house, you can't see the town. It's on a sort of a right. hill, and then there's another hill opposite. And the, the, they, they sort of built the town so that it didn't sort of <laughs> it, it didn't. Uh, Are you sure it didn't the have the town yeah. move? But seriously, yeah. yeah. when, when John Entwistle died, and I read a, I read a, quite a lot about this, and this is a man who'd been in the super group yeah. for forty years. Yeah. Yeah. He would never quit. Yeah. They kept going, yes. Yeah. He'd even written a few of their songs. Yeah, Not yeah. their Boris bigger the ones, but Boris the Spider yeah, and, and things like that. They had to sell that house to yeah. pay the death duties. Yes. Well, I'm sure they did. And the house was not your... worth that much money. I when mean, I, went, I went there... So I... that's the economics of being even a rock superstar. When I went there, it was frozen in time. They had obviously hit this point that you were talking about yeah. where he could no longer keep up with the... the yeah the rock star image and they had like space invaders machines from 1981 this was like in the mid 90s that I went there some band was recording yeah and uh, and these it looked like a, an old pub from the from the 80s that is so perfect because yeah. I, I wrote an article about the auction of the contents of that house and the various things the, that were included in this particular lot one was three sets of Noagahide three-piece suite furniture right Noagahide itself is it which is a kind of fake uh, cowhide isn't yeah, it yeah. kind of thing is itself a very sort of seventies kind of kitsch thing. Um, there were two, there were three or four suits of armour. There was a stuffed American eagle. That's right. Right. Yeah. You yeah. probably saw this on the wall yeah. actually. Yeah. And I uh, think the was last a... thing I remember was two human skeletons. Probably our mate Keith Moon, which is never quite made. Sort of, <laughs> these things were all sort of draped up the stairs. You know, yeah, and, uh, but it was that's sort of old examples of a being stuck in a time warp. You're absolutely right. So you've fallen through a wormhole and finished yeah. up in 1975. Or something. Swimming but pool also had a, had a crack in it and sort of yes, weeds growing. Weeds growing, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Really, it's, it's like a, a, so it was like it, a, sort of a, a, a the beginning of a great movie script. It was, this, a, it was a rock ghost town. Ghost town, yeah. completely. And uh, I think the, the, the band that, I, that I've been to, I can't remember what the cast were recording there, and and they they'd. The, the, the perfect. Thing. This, 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 uh, this uh, bar full of um, you know optics, full of spirits. Yeah. And I think on the first night there, they they entered this <laughs> this bar, yeah. and uh, no one had ever filled it since. You know, several months later, <laughs> you couldn't afford to fill the bar. Up, you know, it was incredible, whatever. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he was there at the time. I, I mean, presumably. Was. I love the idea of the human skeletons. You, you go around to old Wentworth's place and go up the, the grand stairway. There's a you know at night, a little bit disorientated, and a hilarious prank. You know, a couple of rock stars looting. You know, a skeleton probably swing out on the end of a chandelier or something. Or is in bed with you? Is in bed with you? <laughs> in the morning, yes. So listen, chaps, we've reached the point in the podcast where it is traditional to tell what we call the H-O-R-A, the hoary old rock anecdote, and uh, over to our special guest this week. Special guest. Yeah. <laughs> Come all the way <laughs> from the South Coast. Good yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is a back to the hoop. This is a Keith Moon story, and and obviously as he's famous for redecorating hotel rooms when he was, you know, nothing else to do. Uh, but this is one occasion where it was done to him, and um, he had a, a a drum roadie for a while. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he looked strangely like Pete Townsend, and I think this must have appealed to Mooney that he got a roadie that looked like the, the governor, you know. And uh, isn't it a complex psychological thing? <laughs> right, yeah. Like I'm in charge for a day. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 this guy um, had come joined the tour after having recently been uh, uh, a jobbing builder. He'd been working on building sites, and he'd been building holiday inns in in America. And uh, holiday inns, you probably know, are sort of just totally prefabricated. They're slotted together, and sort of like like Lego. And they're the, flat-packed furniture. They're flat-packed hotels, yes. And, and the contents of them are completely identical as well. And, and they are put into place, apparently, with a key, like a sort of a giant Allen key, yeah. that they put the floors in, the ceilings, all the light fittings, the beds, everything is, is bolted in, into place in this standard uh, unit. Um, and this guy happened to have, about this person, in his tool belt, this Holiday in Allen King that he'd, he'd appropriated from the, the last job. So he mentioned this to one of the other guys on the tour, and they kind of cooked up, and, I know, when Mooney's off doing an interview or something, we'll go into his room at the Holiday Inn when I'm staying, and we'll take it apart. So <laughs> oh, Mooney, you, you, gonna, you, wait till you see his face, his little chat. His little eyes will light up. He'll be so confused. So that's what they did. They went in and they <clears throat> unbolted the bed. And the, and the floorboards, and they stacked them up in the bathroom, and then they took down all the light fittings and everything, and put it out on the balcony, till all that was left was this concrete shell. <laughs> <laughs> and they, I think they left... Even the floorboards have gone as well. Yeah, they, they can take everything up. So Moon's going to open the door. Yeah, and there's a four-foot drop into the room. <laughs> Straight into a bit of concrete. On, switches the light on. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, what and about the girl who was with him? Yeah. <laughs> And apparently they left a bedside, the bedside table on the phone there on the, on, the, on, the, on the floor. That's all they left so that he could, uh, he could ring down. And sure enough, you know, someone gets a call. And, Hello, here, it's Mooney here. It's, it's not working here. He said, is that room service? He says, could you send up a room? Send up a room. That's the old gag. Send me a room. Very good. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, I can remember, uh, I can remember being on tour with the damned in, uh, in making a film about them, in fact, um, for the telly in Jutland in uh, Denmark and this had happened to their tour manager I know it's a terrible old cliche but people actually did used to do this because mm. apparently and I didn't believe it I had missed this it happened the week beforehand but the, 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 their road manager had been in a state of terrific nervous distress trying to kind of keep the, the occupants of the paper back unmanageable human beings and the final straw that had made him walk off the tour was that if you have a ceiling of a room it's built up sturdy I don't think plasterboard or something yeah. it's got to be Firm of material. You can, with the application of superglue, stick furniture <coughs> on it and it actually stays there. If it's not, yeah. you know, expensive heavy road tables or something. Yeah. And they had just glued in, in perfect formation everything that had been on the floor and sitting exactly as it was with the rugs, the copy of the Gideon's yeah. Bible was glued upside yeah. down, the table upside down. And apparently this guy just came in and had a heart attack. He was just, what could he do? He just came in and he just looked up and he just think, my entire world has gone wrong. You know what I mean? Because you wouldn't immediately think someone's glued up in the ceiling. You'd think it's wrong, something's wrong with me. Yeah, you'd, you'd wipe your glasses. You'd wipe you? your glasses, you'd pinch yourself and you'd look again. And then you would, you'd sack yourself and leave the tour.
and avoid the dam. Well, listen, it's, it's been it's been a pleasure having you row out to Bollocks Island. Oh yes, you <laughs> he said, "I'd love to spend some time on Bollocks Island." He said, "So it's been it's been a pleasure this to have you." Cast away. what's your eighth if you, could, <laughs> if you could only take one Keith Moon story with you, what would it be? Yeah. Um, thanks very much for listening. If you want to know anything more about the magazine, wordmagazine.co.uk. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.